Pushkin. Hey, Against the Rules listeners. I'm excited to share that we'll return in the fall for a brand new season. While we're hard at work on new episodes, today I'm bringing you a special interview with Dr. Maya Shunker. Maya is a friend of mine who studied cognitive science at Yale, worked on behavioral science in the Obama White House, and now leads behavioral economics at Google. On her new podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, Maya asks the question, what exactly happens when we find ourselves at the brink of change? She hosts revealing conversations with people who've lived through extraordinary changes, like Tiffany Haddish, Hillary Clinton, Casey Musgraves, and little-known guests, too, like a young cancer researcher in the throes of a stage four diagnosis. I sat down with Maya to learn more about her own life change, what inspired her to make a podcast, what listeners can expect this season, and more. I am recording. And Michael, before we start talking about the podcast, I did want to share, I went down memory lane a little bit around our friendship because we've been friends for like, I don't know, five, six years. So I went back into the Gmail chambers and I found something very fun from 2015. This is after uh, my husband, Jimmy, and I hung out with you at Dick Thaler's birthday party. Okay. So we spent like a few days together. So I sent you the following email. Dearest Michael, Jimmy Lee and I would like to sign up to be your friend. I'll work with your agent to complete the relevant paperwork. Best, Maya and Jimmy. So first of all, clearly I don't know how to play hard to get. But thankfully, you didn't really enjoy the chase because you wrote back right away. Dear Maya, your application has been reviewed by our committee. All boxes seem to be checked. We are pleased to inform you of your acceptance. Michael. (laughs) Yeah, so that's I have how a feeling, it all began. I have a feeling we, but we share these character traits. I have a feeling we both <laughs> assume that other people would want to be friends with us, and so we don't actually aren't very shy about it. When I met you, there was no you. You had no media ambition. You were an advisor to Obama. How did you even get interested in being a podcaster? So during quarantine, I was feeling really overwhelmed by all the changes that were happening around me. Um, I think everybody was feeling really overwhelmed by the change happening around them. And um, I think I realized, because I'm a cognitive scientist, so I was thinking about this from the perspective of psychology, right? Which is like, how do we interact with this change thing that just happens in our lives, whether we like it or not? And, you know, maybe the specifics of what 2020 threw our way is unprecedented, but our human ability to navigate change is not. And so maybe if we heard stories from people who have experienced extraordinary changes in their lives, we could learn something interesting, right? There's no manual out there on how to navigate big life changes, right? We don't know what that process is supposed to look like. There's no science textbook on this. Um, And so I was like, let's dig up the most fascinating change stories, changes of all kinds, right? And then let's see what we can learn. Let's let's see if we can change our own minds about change. So you started with the subject rather the, than the ambition? You didn't think, oh, I want to be a podcaster unless we, what should I do it about? Definitely not. Hmm. That's just not the directionality that works for my brain. I need to have a really fascinating thing to say that feels interesting to me. It can't be the reverse. Like I really... Um, I, I love podcasts. So I love the audio medium. It's super immersive for me, way more immersive than TV. Um, so I'm a huge fan of podcasts, but I just never imagined myself having a show of my own. What, what were your favorite podcasts? 
well, I'm a big Bachelor fan, as you know. Yep. So I absolutely subscribe to all the main Bachelor fan podcasts. Yep. Um, I like interview shows. Um, I listen, of course, to like Lori's Santos's Happiness Lab. Um, actually, let me just pull up my podcast feed right now and tell you what's on there. Yeah, I mean, I, I've got the classic ones. So like uh, The Daily got against the rules, but that seems shameless right now. No, it doesn't. Revisionist history, still processing, hidden brain. How? Oh, I love how I built this. I actually, part of me when I was thinking about this podcast was like, oh, how I built this talks about these elaborate journeys of humans who have built incredible things. And I was like, I kind of want a version of like how I built this life. Um, and so that was part of the inspiration, which was people are going through all these changes and how do they maneuver and how do they find creative solutions along the way and how do they navigate? Have you always been interested in change or did this just kind of come up? You know, I, I study change, right? So I study yep. how and why people change. I study yep. how and why people make decisions, how they develop their attitudes and beliefs about the world. Um, but I never elevated change to an important concept until I was thinking about this podcast. It felt in 2020 like a really big deal to think about. Um, and I think against the backdrop of such a broken political society, it felt especially important to figure out um, how and why we change in in potentially good ways um, right. because we are seeing so many fractures. But you, no, yeah. Your your observation that, uh, that this is a moment to investigate the, the phenomenon because of COVID is a really good one. And it, it's to me, it's interesting because... You can see what's happening. You can see now, as as we start to come out of it by fits and starts. But but that a lot of people they had to change, and it's hard for them all over again because they have to change. That they've got to, they've adapted to some new kind of way of going through the world, and and they feel a kind of hesitancy about going back to the old ways. So uh, people have very different attitudes towards it. It's not just one thing for everybody. Um, that's exactly right. And it's not one thing for everyone over the course of their lives, right? Right. I think that's one thing we're finding out is, you know, huge childhood trauma with change doesn't necessarily mean that you have an aversion to it later on, right? And we see some of that unfold in some of the stories. Right. So give me an example of that. Give me an example of someone whose attitude towards change has changed. Yeah. So one person I interviewed was Tiffany Haddish. She is a, an incredible comedian. She just won um, Best Comedy Album at the Grammys this year, making her the first Black woman to win this award since the early 80s when Whoopi Goldberg won it. Um, and she had a deeply traumatic childhood. When she was eight, her mom had a really terrible car accident uh, that left her with severe brain damage and made her extremely violent and very verbally abusive. And so... Tiffany's having to navigate this new world where this person that she loved most in the world is now actively tormenting her. And so it's it's a profound change in her life. Um, and so what's fascinating about Tiffany's story is that she recognized early on as a kid that she had this talent, and that was to make people laugh. But rather than treating it as this recreational hobby, right, the thing that she just did, you know, with her friends and whatnot— she repurposed it into a survival tool. And so she uses this over the course of her life. When she's a kid, she tries to make her mom laugh, even just for a moment to distract her from getting hit. Does it work? And it's working, yes. Oh. She goes to school, doesn't know how to read. She charms her classmates into letting her copy their homework 
by making them laugh and being the class clown. And so she's so traumatized by change early in her life, but then slowly realizes that she's identified that she has this superpower along the way. Um, And so now there's an element of her that embraces change because she realizes that she's got this amazing weapon that she can use at every turn. It's actually, it's just a great way to get at people's lives. I mean, getting at your life. You So you start your podcast, right, by telling everybody that you once were going to be a musician and that didn't work out because you had this horrible injury. But back then you weren't, were you thinking like about, you weren't thinking about change at that age as a concept, like as a concept, as an abstract concept. You just had to go about your life and do something different. Yeah, I don't think any kid is like, oh, and now I'm confronting change. I mean, maybe the philosophers among us were doing that, but I certainly wasn't. I was like, this sucks. That's what I was thinking. If I were, if I met the, uh, the musician you way back yeah. when, when you were a kid, and I was, I was interviewing you, would you be recognizable to me? You, were you basically the same character, but just with a <laughs> violin in your hands? Uh, I think I was really the same. So when we look back at like childhood videos, it's a, a little bit unnerving how similar I, I was back then. I think some of the traits I preserved are like getting inc- incredibly excited about things, right. very passionate about things. I, I was telling my production team that I have had to do months of voice therapy over the past few years because my doctor diagnosed me as getting so excited when I talk, I forget to breathe. This is apparently a medical diagnosis, <laughs> but I've now had to retrain myself to remember to breathe. Um, so I think that like exuberance was certainly there when I was a kid. But I think I was, maybe the one thing that I had in childhood that I have not retained is just an absolute singular focus on a goal. I mean, I was so dedicated. Like when I think back to being nine, 10, 11, going into a room and practicing for five hours. I, I just can't, my brain can't comprehend today having that kind of discipline. I, I don't, I, I lost it. I, I stopped cultivating that skill. If you could go back, learning what you've learned so far, or, you know, just taking what you've learned as a grown up, including all your behavioral s- science stuff, if you had to yeah. go back and consult the young you after you get, you're told that you're never going to play the violin again, Yeah. Is there anything you would have told the young you? Yeah, I would have said, stop making long-term plans. Mm. I was an absolute, I still am. I'm a type A or whatever that means. Right. I was obsessed with plan making. I wanted to know what my life was going to be in two years, in four years, in 10 years. That persisted through college and grad school. And at every point, I'm like, "I I just need to know what comes next. So that trait, yeah. that trait survived that trauma. That's it amazing. It's amazing. I was like, well, I lost this one, but like, surely I can control everything else. You know, you don't always, you don't learn the valuable lesson that your right. control is an illusion right. until I think you had a few more experiences with right. change. You know, the next season of my podcast is about experts, and we're still figuring it out. But I, mm. there's a fair chance that there'll be a show about experts whose expertise is no longer of use or valued in any way, that they go from being, you know, prized or at least used to being completely pointless. What do we tell them? Now you're a budding expert on how to endure these sort of changes. What do you do? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, when you first brought up expertise, I was like, wow, that's super relevant in my life because I had this expertise I had been building for over 10 years. And then overnight, it became useless. Didn't matter at all that I had this dexterity and I could play all these pieces. I suddenly couldn't play the violin anymore. I think one thing I'm learning 
actually, there, I had this really interesting interview with a young guy around my age. He's a cancer researcher. His name is Scott. He, he's a cancer researcher, but he's also a total health nut. So for like the last 10 years, he's been a vegan and he's been obsessively trying to optimize his lifespan. Okay. Intermittent fasting, high intensity interval training, you name it, he's done it. Okay. Pours turmeric on his food. Okay. Turmeric should not be poured on food. And I'm Indian. So turmeric is like one of my spices. That's not how you engage with turmeric. But anyway, he said that his worst nightmare was eventually becoming deeply ill. And last year in the middle of coronavirus, he gets a stage four cancer diagnosis that overnight leads him to have to amputate his right leg. He's had three or four surgeries since then, including removing vertebrae, having to do six rounds of chemotherapy, moving to MD Anderson for treatments. I mean, it's, it's a gut-wrenching story. And it's, it's, it's particularly gut-wrenching against, against the backdrop of someone who spent his entire life trying to avoid this outcome, right? This guy's worst fear comes true. And what he was marveling about is the fact that today, the day that I was doing the interview, he more or less felt as happy as he had before the diagnosis. Really? Which was stunning to me. That is stunning. Because the happiness research does show that we are massively resilient in the face of adversity and setback. And then when really good things happen, we don't stay super happy for a long time at all. We immediately go back down to our original set points. So I was familiar with this research, but I always called bullshit on it. Yeah. I was like, and I told Scott this, I was like, I'm so familiar with this research, but I was always like, okay, I get all of you will respond in that way. But I assure <laughs> you that if I went right. through this experience, no way in hell I'm rebounding. Right. But to hear someone who could say to me, Maya, I was in your shoes. I'm exactly the same way. was really heartening. I w- and, and he said, if I had known the way that I would psychologically respond to this event, I wouldn't have spent so much time being so fearful of it in the first place. Huh. And I think there is a lesson there for there, totally. for that episode you're about to do, which is like there are always unexpected, almost I would call like side effects that happen with change, right? right? Things that we can't predict. So having decided to do the podcast on the subject, yeah. are you finding the subject exhausting itself or do you think that it's kind of endless? How long can this go on for? Do you think, how many permutations on this theme are there? Yeah, I was definitely worried when I was conceiving the idea, like, is this just a season, you know? And my guests have proven me wrong, which I think is the best way to discover that there's more potential in something. It's not from doing your own research. It's not from having thoughts in the middle of the night. It's from uh, your interview subjects teaching you that there are all these facets of change that you wouldn't even predict. So my favorite kind of interview is when I go in thinking I know what a person's change story is, what what moment really changed them and the reaction they had. And they completely prove me wrong and show me that there was this other element of the change that was actually super formative. So this happened actually just on Friday. So I was interviewing Tommy Caldwell, who you might know, he is a, he's an extremely skilled climber. He's considered one of the greatest big wall climbers in the world. And he scaled the Dawn Wall, which was deemed impossible uh, by just about everyone. And he did it with nine freaking fingers because he cut off one of his fingers during a wood shopping accident in his garage. Okay. So the, the, the chain story I was most interested in had actually well preceded losing the finger. It happened when he was climbing in Kyrgyzstan and he was, Um, held hostage by these captors. 
and for six days was under their watch and was basically an, in a state of severe starvation, um, extremely cold temperatures. They thought they were going to die of hypothermia. And they can't converse with their captors, right? They speak to- two totally different languages, and they're trying to plot an escape route. And in the end, uh, Tommy ends up pushing one of his captors off of a cliff. Um, so, and, and he, I think he surprised himself because, like, he's a very kind of like soft, timid type, and he doesn't believe that one should kill. And so he he has to reckon with this event for so many years. And so I was probing into that part of the story, right? Which is like, it seemed like you proved to yourself, you know, where your actual limits were, right? Like you were able to endure this really intense experience. But the part that was so interesting to me that I didn't even think for a second about until I got to the interview is that the true motivation for him, the reason why he's been able to engage in incredible feats since Kyrgyzstan is actually because he's been chasing a mental state that he had only experienced once when he was in Kyrgyzstan. So it was about four days into his captivity where his body, I think, totally turned, it went from starving and apathetic to survival mode. And he said that he felt profound mental clarity and focus in that moment. He was in the ultimate flow state. Everything in the world was sharp and clear, and he knew exactly what he needed to do and how to do it. And he said it was so intoxicating that since that day, he's been chasing that high and has only reached it once. He even tried to starve himself once, like on a climb, to see if he could get back there, okay? He reached it when he was scaling the Don Wall. And I remember telling him, Tommy, if an alien descended on this planet and knew that you had had this deeply harrowing experience... And that you were then trying to recreate those circumstances in normal life because it was a change that you had actually desired. It like was something you were striving for. They would think you were insane. But that's been the secret sauce to his experience. And again, I just love it when a guest teaches me, you know, about their story and makes me think about change in a totally different way. You know, it's funny because you're naturally a performer, right? You were going to be a performer. You're going to play the violin. Mm-hmm. You're going to be on a stage. You've now got, you now built a stage and you're on it again. Mm. Uh, and you're very naturally there. I, when I remember when I first met you, when you were giving that talk to those people at the Harvard Business School, you were so obviously a performer. You were so obviously just made to be in front of people talking. And uh, so now you're, now you're doing it. Um, how is being a podcaster changing you? So I think it is making me a much better listener. Um, and I actually don't see myself as the performer. I, I, I try to approach every interview as though I'm giving the guests the stage. Right. Because that's the person whose story I'm trying to shine the light on. Right. And so my only role is to figure out the right questions to ask such that they reveal really fascinating things about themselves. I think it's actually just wonderful to be on this end of the mic, right? I've done tons of interviews. I've given tons of talks, performed so many times as a violinist. Right. And in many ways, I'm now an audience member. But right. I'm like an audience member who's almost like a, a music critic a little bit because like she's trying to probe yeah. deep and try to figure out where some of the cracks are and, and like and dig in there. Right. So you're telling me that five years now when you come over to my house for dinner, you're going to be kind of quiet, recessive, shy. Yeah, you won't even be able to get a word out of me. No, you'll just be it's there. It'll be a very painful be just, dinner. I'll be, you'll, leave these, <laughs> you'll leave awkward silences that I have to fill. That's, so that's where you're going? No. I'm going to cut this show off. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I, I mean, I think the other thing it's teaching me is like, I don't, 
I don't tend to get like any sort of stage fright or anxiety going into an interview or a conversation. I think maybe the reason for that is that when you're a little kid and you're forced to go on stage and play these deeply technical passages, when you're then told later in life, you simply have to talk, like speak words. You're like, oh, wow, I'll sign up for that. (laughs) That seems a hell of a lot easier. And I'm hoping that the fact that I'm not approaching the conversations with anxiety is putting my guests at peace too, right? Letting them feel open and like we're really just having a conversation, which is what I'm hoping will be the vibe of the show. It's really meant to be not super formal. I can be quite irreverent at times. That is my actual personality, as you know, right? And so I'm hoping at least part of that that comes through. All right. All right, I'm gonna let you go. Great to see you and let's have dinner again soon. Yeah, sounds great. Okay, bye. bye. Thanks to Maya for talking with me about her new podcast. I'm excited to now share a clip of the first episode of A Slight Change of Plans, an interview with Daryl Davis, a Black jazz musician who convinced KKK members to leave the Klan. You can subscribe to A Slight Change of Plans wherever you listen to Against the Rules. Okay, here's the episode. So I was riding in my car. I'm driving, and this Klansman was sitting in my passenger seat. And we got on the, on the topic of a crime. And he made the mention that uh, black people are born with a gene that makes them violent. And I said, look, I'm as black as anybody you've ever seen. I have never done a drive-by or a carjacking. How do you explain that? This man did not hesitate one second. He answered me instantly. He said, your gene is latent. It hasn't come out yet. That's Daryl Davis, a blues musician. And yeah, you heard him right. He's driving in his car with a member of the Ku Klux Klan. You know, I was speechless. I was dumbfounded. And he's sitting next to me all smug and secure, like, uh-huh, you see, you know, you have nothing to say. And I thought about it for a moment. Rather than attack him, just say, it's not true, it's not true. I said to him, I said, you know, white people have a gene within them that make them serial killers. And he said, why would you say that? I said, well, face it, name me three black serial killers. He thought about it, he couldn't name anybody, he couldn't do it. I rattled off Charles Manson, Jeffrey Dahmer, Henry Lee Lucas, John Wayne Gacy, Ted Bundy, David Berkowitz, son of Sam, uh, Albert DeSalvo, the Boston Strangler. And I said, son, you are a serial killer. And he said, Daryl, I've never killed anybody. I said, your gene is latent, hasn't come out yet. He said, well, that's stupid. And I said, well, duh, (laughs) it is stupid. And he got very, very quiet. And I could tell that the gears in in his head were spinning super fast, probably, you know, burning a hole in there. And then he, a moment later, he changed the subject. But within five months, this guy quit the Ku Klux Klan. Since that car ride 30 years ago, Daryl Davis has gone on to convince dozens of people to leave the Ku Klux Klan. Convincing someone else to change their mind, their view of reality, is one of the most elusive, coveted types of change, which is why Daryl's story feels so improbable. So how does he do it? I'm Maya Shunker. 
As a cognitive scientist, I've always been fascinated by how we change our minds and why we change our minds. On this show, I'll have intimate conversations with people who've navigated extraordinary change, and hopefully their stories will get us to think differently about change in our own lives. This is a slight change of plans. Daryl didn't set out to change anyone's mind. He was mostly just focused on his music. But one night, his life took an unexpected turn when he was playing a show at a bar called the Silver Dollar Lounge. The Silver Dollar Lounge at the time was an all-white lounge. And I say that not meaning that black people could not go in, but meaning that they did not go in by their own choice because they were not welcome there. And when you go somewhere where you're not welcome and uh, alcohol is being served, sometimes it does not make for a good combination, especially when you're outnumbered. So we took a break after the first set, and I was walking across the dance floor to go sit you know, with the bandmates when somebody approached me from behind and put their arm around my shoulder. Now, I don't know anybody in this place, so I'm turning around to see who's touching me. And it was this gentleman, maybe 15, 18 years older than me. And he's all excited. He says, man, I sure like your piano playing. This is the first time I ever heard a black man play piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. And I told him, I said, well, Jerry Lee got it from the same place I did, from black blues and boogie-woogie piano players. Oh, no, 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 no. I never heard no black man play like that except for you. Jerry Lee invented that style. I said, look, I know Jerry Lee Lewis. He's a good friend of mine. He's told me himself where he learned how to play. The guy didn't buy that either. But he was so fascinated with me that he wanted me to come back to his table. He's going to buy me a drink. So I don't drink, but I agreed to have a cranberry juice. He bought it, paid the waitress, and then he took his glass and he clinked my glass and cheered me. And then he announces, you know, this is the first time I ever sat down with a black man and had a drink. So innocently, I asked him, why? And he didn't answer me at first. I asked him again. And his buddy sitting next to him elbowed him and said, tell him, tell him. And the guy looked at me and said, I'm a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Well, I burst out laughing at him because now I do not believe him. I thought he was you know, pulling a joke on me. I'm laughing. He goes inside his pocket, pulls out his wallet, flips through it, and hands me his Klan membership card. I recognize the Klan insignia, which is a red circle with a white cross and a red blood drop in the center of the cross. And I, I'm thinking to myself, oh my goodness, you know, this is for real. So I stopped laughing. But he was, you know, very friendly and, and very uh, appreciative of, of my music and all excited. He gave me his phone number to, uh, you know, to call him whenever I was to return to this bar with this band. And so I'd call him every six weeks and say, hey, man, you know, I'm down there at the Silver Dollar this weekend. Come on out. You say it so nonchalantly. Like, so I called the guy. It is remarkable that you called this person. And... You know, I don't think I'm alone in, in in struggling to understand, you know, what was going through through your mind at this moment. If someone told me that they were in the freaking clan, I would certainly not call them back. In fact, I'd probably just flee the scene. And, and I think this is for pretty good reasons. Well, you know, I was questioning myself for a second, like, what the heck am I doing sitting here with a Klansman? But the guy was friendly. He disputed 
the things that I had in mind uh, of uh, the image of a typical Klansman. And he wanted to share my music with uh, some of his fellow Klansmen and Klanswomen. Hmm. And they would, you know, get on the dance floor and dance to our music. You know, they didn't come in robes and hoods, right? You know, they came in, you know, regular street clothes. This goes on for a year, an entire year. Daryl would play a gig at this bar, and he would invite Klan members to watch him play. This is one of those things that makes Daryl so unusual. I mean, for me, a huge part of what makes someone who they are is their belief system. And so if we share the same taste in music, that's fine, that's great. But if I then find out they're a flagrant racist, that's going to fully eclipse everything else about them. So how does Daryl look past that? He says it's not like that. He wasn't looking past it. He wanted to learn from it. See, Daryl had spent his early childhood overseas in a school he describes as a United Nations for little kids. Race was always in the background. But when he moved back to the States when he was 10, he couldn't escape racism. And ever since then, he's been interested in why people hate. I had had an experience at the age of 10 where some racist people threw rocks and bottles at me during a parade in which I was the only black participant. And never having had this happen to me before, I was perplexed as to why people were doing this. And when later my parents explained that it was racism, my 10-year-old brain could not process the idea that someone who had never seen me before, who had never spoken with me and knew nothing about me, would want to inflict pain upon me for no other reason than the color of my skin. You know, uh, that just did not compute with me. Well, later when I realized this was true, there are people like that, I formed a question in my mind, which was, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? And some people would just say, well, Daryl, you know, that's just the way it is. Well, no, it's not just the way it is. There has to be a reason behind it. Well, it's always been that way. That was not good enough for me. I want to get to the nucleus of it. So Daryl dedicates himself to answering this question. He devours books about race and racism. He reads nearly every book that exists on the Klan. But he's still unsatisfied. So he decides he wants to write his own book about the Klan. All the books written on the Klan, except for mine, have been written by white authors. You know, white authors obviously have an easier time getting in contact with the Klan and sitting down and not fearing any ramifications or whatever. Or they might even join the Klan undercover. A Klansman would have a different perspective sitting there talking to a black person than he would a white person. And how, how do you feel that perspective would have been different? Because he's sitting there telling the person that he hates why he hates them. So now he's having to face me and face those same questions, you know, that, he, that, that somebody would ask, or even different questions that a, that a white interviewer, journalist, uh, would not ask. Because they don't think of them, because they don't feel the, things, the same things that I feel. As Daryl starts researching for his book, it suddenly dawns on him. He already knows someone in the Klan, that guy from the Silver Dollar Lounge. So he goes on a mission to track him down. It takes a while, but eventually he finds the guy's address. And I knocked on the door, you know, unannounced. And he opens the door and sees me. He goes, Daryl, you know, what are you doing here? And he, he looked up and down the hallway to see if I brought anybody with me. So it was more him who was intimidated than me. And uh, when, he, when he stepped out of his apartment, I stepped in. So he turns around, comes back in. So now we're, we're standing inside his apartment. And he says, you know, what's going on? Are you still playing? What's going on? I say, yeah, 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 I'm still playing. But listen, I need to talk to you about the Klan. He says, the Klan? I said, yeah. He goes, well, I quit. 
You know, I, I quit a while back. I said, well, you know, where's all your clan stuff? He says, well, they came and got it. And I said, what do you mean they came and got your Robin Hood? You know, don't, don't you own it? And he explained to me, when you join the clan, if you have the money to pay for it, you can purchase your Robin Hood and it's yours to keep forever. If you cannot afford it at the time, you can still take it home with you, but you put a little extra money in every time you pay your dues until you pay it off. Sort of like layaway kind of thing. A bizarre financial aid system within the clan. Love it. Yes, exactly. Yeah, equal opportunity for everyone who's racist. Great. That's right. Okay. Absolutely. So uh, anyway, he said that um, uh, they came and got it, but when they came to get it, he could not find the mask. And um, he, he had since found it, and he, and he needed to return it. I said, well, can I see it? So he goes down the hallway, comes back, and hands me the mask. And I said to him, I said, do you know Roger Kelly? And he says, yeah, Roger was my grand dragon. I know him. And I said, well, listen, I need you to hook me up with Mr. Kelly. I want you to interview him. I'm going to write a book on the Klan. Now, let me explain how the hierarchy of the Klan works. You understand these terms. Uh, we would call a state leader a governor. They call that the grand dragon, a mayor. That person is known as the exalted cyclops. Anybody <laughs> on the great level is, uh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, the self-importance of these names is, is truly astonishing. Well, see, that's, yeah, but see, that's also what attracts people because, you know, they, they get titles, they feel important. Yes. It's, it's a sense of self-importance, you know, because they're, they're not getting that from the society in which they live. So, you know, this brotherhood, this gang, if you will, gives them those things. So at the time, Roger Kelly was the Grand Dragon, state leader from Maryland. So I said, I'll tell you what, you need to return this mask, right? He said, yeah. I said, give me Roger Kelly's phone number and his address, and I'll go return it for you. And he snatched that thing right out of my hand and said, no way. And so I begged and pleaded with him. Well, he finally gave it to me on the condition that I not reveal to Mr. Kelly where I got it. And um, he warned me. He said, Daryl, do not go to Roger Kelly's house. Roger Kelly will kill you. And I said, well, that's, that's the whole reason why I need to talk to Mr. Kelly. I need to know why would he kill me? You know, what, what is going on in, in his mind when he sees me? I have to understand this. You did realize that you might not get the answer to the question if, in fact, the um, dangerous part happened first, right? Uh, true. This is true. But, but, I, but I, I was thinking, you know, that um, I, would, I would prevail. I'm the eternal optimist, if you will. Well, I am not the eternal optimist, and Daryl's decision feels incredibly risky. But anyway, he has his secretary, Mary, call and schedule the interview, and he gives her one important instruction. Do not tell him that I'm black and see if you would consent to sitting down and giving her boss an interview. I figured, you know, he might pick up in my voice that I'm black. And, uh, I didn't want him to hang up the phone and say, am I talking to you? And then my whole project would have ended before it ever got started. Roger Kelly agrees to meet for an interview one evening at a nearby motel. Daryl gets to the motel early with Mary. He's not sure if Roger will even agree to step foot in the room. But if he does, Daryl wants to be hospitable. He asks Mary to fill up the ice bucket and buy some sodas. And then they start arranging the room. There's not much to arrange. There's the ice bucket, a table, two chairs, and Daryl's canvas bag, which has his tape recorder and a Bible. The Klan claims to be a Christian organization, and they claim that the Bible preaches uh, racial separation. Now, in my reading of the Bible, I have never seen anything like that in there. So I want to be able to pull out my Bible and hand it to him and say, here, Mr. Kelly, please show me chapter and verse where it says 
blacks and whites must be separate. So I'm all prepared, right? Right on time, right to the minute, 5.15, knock, knock, knock on the door. In walks what is known as the Grand Nighthawk. Nighthawk means bodyguard, uh, security. He's dressed in military camouflage, and he has that clan patch on his chest on one side. On the other side of his chest are the initials KKK, and embroidered on his cap, it said Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. And on his hip, he had a semi-automatic handgun and a holster. He comes in. Mr. Kelly is walking directly behind him, carrying a briefcase and a dark blue suit and tie. And the Nighthawk turned the corner and saw me and just froze in his tracks. So Mr. Kelly slammed into his back and knocked this guy forward. And now that they both are stumbling around trying to you know, regain their balance. And they're like looking all around the room like, uh-uh, something's not right here. And I'm just sitting at the table looking at their faces. And I could read their faces like a billboard. Uh, their faces were saying to me, uh, did the desk clerk give us the wrong room number? Did, you, did, did we misunderstand something? Or, or is this an ambush? So, you know, I saw the apprehension. And so I stood up and I displayed both of my palms to show I had nothing in my hands. And I walked forward. I extended my right hand. And I said, hi, Mr. Kelly. I'm Daryl Davis. If you like this episode, you can listen to A Slight Change of Plans wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to check out Against the Rules when we return in the fall. 